Howdy, dear listeners. You are listening to The Slavic Connection. This is your host, Matt. I'm actually joined by a new host today, Catherine Birch. Catherine, do you want to tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah. Hi, everyone. I'm so excited to be here. You might know me from some IRG classes or from some REE classes since those are both of my majors. I'm really involved with the Clemens Center, and I'd like to get more involved with the Strauss Center. And more than anything, though, I'm super excited to start this semester with you guys all here at the Slava Connection. So thanks for having me. Yeah, we are extremely excited to have you. I should also point out I'm very proud because I was actually a couple years ago your TA. Holy smoke! So today our guest was Dr. Kirill Avramov. Dr. Avramov is an assistant professor here at UT Austin working in Crees. He's also a non-resident fellow at the Intelligence Studies Project. They have successfully joined NATO and the EU. They are in the waiting zone for joining the Euro. And yet there is a big problem and it is the rule of law and corruption. Catherine, what did we talk about today with uh, Dr. Avramov? Yeah, we went over a variety of topics, which I'm very surprised and proud that we got it all within the time limit. We talked about his new book, Russia's Hidden Armies. We talked a little bit about Bulgaria. We talked about the role of these privatized armies in Bulgaria and Belarus. It was a really great time, and I certainly learned a lot from it. Right. They're mysterious, interesting, so I'm sure you guys will love it. Enjoy. You're listening to The Slavic Connection, brought to you by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Texas at Austin. Kirill, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Uh, it's always a pleasure and an honor to be uh, part of the Slavic Connection. So, Kirill, I think, I mean, our, our whole region is on fire in a lot of ways, but I, I think that the natural place to start is actually in Bulgaria, which doesn't get enough attention, even in Europe. It's, all, it's almost similar to Belarus uh, in that way, but there's a very interesting protest movement going on. As far as I'm aware, it's gone on for over 40 days, I believe 44, 45 days. It's a conflict basically stemming from corruption, as far as I can understand. And we have a longtime uh, prime minister who is embattled and he's hanging on, but they have made a lot of concessions to the protesters. And we've also seen a lot of very interesting protest tactics used where they are occupying spaces, almost like it's Maidan. They're closing roads. They're trying to kind of paralyze the country. And it's clear that these protesters have learned from other successful political changes. But I I think my first question about this is, you know, what, to what extent are these protests related to kind of unfinished issues related to the fall of communism in Bulgaria and kind of the transition to democracy? You would get the sense that on the one hand, Bulgaria has been part of Europe and the EU for for several years now. But on the other hand, it's very well understood that they're lagging behind a lot of these EU standards. And so just help us make sense of this a little bit. Well, first of all, thank you very much for bringing up something quite important. In a sense, uh, I agree with you that the region uh, is really, should we say, on fire or very restless. And it's definitely connected to something that you have pointed out. Bulgaria and Romania in general, if we put them in context and borrow from Dmitry Bachev's old cloud classification, could be understood as successful laggards. And they're successful laggards in a sense that now, some 30 years after the fall of communism, they have successfully joined NATO and the EU. They are uh, in the waiting zone, uh, specifically Bulgaria, uh, for uh, joining the euro, the common currency. And yet there is a big problem hanging out over the head of those uh, political uh, elites and the civil society in those countries. And it is the rule of law and corruption. The problem with uh, rule of law and corruption obviously has been reflected in in the position of Brussels by including those countries, regardless of their successful presence, into the verification mechanism. So it is really sort of a situation where the stick and the carrot possibly are not working as as, uh, as they should. You know, by stick and carrot, of course, we're talking about withdrawal of finances and cohesion funds in the case of problems with rule of law. Uh, and on the other side, what can you do once you let somebody in the club? Uh, you don't want to send the wrong signals having in mind the whole situation in the, in the Western Balkans. 
Now, straight to the protests. Uh, Bulgaria has been rocked for over 40 days of civic protests, which are born out of the civic fatigue of the ruling Gare Borisov's uh, party, which it has third consecutive term, and is fed up with the inefficiencies in uh, the judicial system. So problems connected to corruption and rule of law. And uh, what is interesting in those protests is that we are seeing a very heterogeneous uh, representation on the streets of Sofia, but not only in major big cities, combined with uh, escalating tactics, which are trying to not only create presence outside, but try to push the political elite uh, towards understanding that young people and people which uh, are also from, and we should not forget it, probably half a million or more Bulgarians have immigrated uh, for the recent years, which is a demographic problem, do not see their future, which is very paradoxical in, in uh, in this country, in this situation, and with this particular elite. Now, interestingly enough, the governing party under Borko Borisov has used the last several days to propose nonetheless what is known as Grand National Assembly and rewriting of the Bulgarian Constitution. And, uh, you know, having in mind that he thinks that uh, their proposals are reflecting what the protesters actually are seeking in terms of change. Now, we can understand this tactic as desperately buying time and clinging into power because with various intensity, protesters hasn't, haven't gone away. What the problem is that they see a huge sort of um, gray area, if you will, of corruption when it comes to public procurement. What they see is delayed justice and an equal application of justice for uh, the oligarchy, which has been created uh, and clings to uh, to those elites, and for the common citizen of Bulgaria, which have to choose fight or flight. And it has been historically so far that flight has prevailed. You have massive amounts of working age and young people, Bulgarians, and if you look at the demographic picture, it's not pretty grim, which have been opting out to live outside of the country. Now, when these people are being asked as to why they would choose to go to Germany or the UK or mainly Western Europe, partially uh, North America, you will see that beyond the purely economic desire for improvement of, of their living standards, a very common answer would be that they're not seeing a future for their, for their children in a system which does not allow meritocratic growth and which rewards political loyalty almost down to the lowest level. This is all so complicated by the fact that the protesters are pointing out a problem with uh, sort of the governing uh, construction of governing coalitions in Bulgaria in general. One of the constant players in Bulgarian politics, and a lot of people would claim that it has been a kingmaker for, for almost three decades uh, is the role of MRF or the Movement for Rights and Freedoms, uh, which is the representative, political representative of the Turkish minority in Bulgaria. And there is this big question, of course, uh, in, the, in the, the policy realm, Bulgarian policy realm, as to should MRF always be entitled to be in the governing coalition because staying too much in power inevitably will bring you to this vicious cycle of corruption. Of course, you know, nominally MRF is in opposition, but in fact, without sort of their support to which they are capitalizing, of course, in a form of public procurement is becoming up to a point where a lot of people are talking that we're not talking actually uh, about uh, a mature democracy, but some feudal practices which keep people loyal and in check. And that extends all the way to the uh, prosecutor general, which becomes an instrument for punishment of people that deviate from their support or from their participation and so on, obedience, you know, towards uh, the, the, the style of governing. Now, there is something to be said, of course, about the figure of the Bulgarian prime minister, the strongman, 
which grew out of a personal bodyguard of the last former dictator Todorovkov, uh, through uh, being a mayor of Seoul, or rather to be um, uh, sort of the, the the head of police, and then moving out to. Uh, this is what I was getting at with the unfinished business. <laughs> that there's a direct line to. Absolutely, and uh, you know, for an outsider, from an outsider perspective, it's even even stranger because you know this is the center right party, you know, and he claims to be uh, day in day out. You know, he always reminds of his grandfather being killed by the communists, and yet what really irks the urban young dweller of Sofia today of Varna, Burgas, and so on is not so much probably the direct connection. It, it is an unfinished business in essence, but it's unfinished business in a in a in a, in a different way as well. It is the unfinished business uh, of the ge- genesis of the Bulgarian oligarchy. And this Bulgarian oligarchy has been born and has direct links, of course, to the security services of the past regime. And uh, for people, you know, the managerial elite that opted out very quickly uh, to understand that political loyalty towards the Communist Party will not be rewarded, and it has to be converted from political to economic capital. Now, the wild 90s, however, gave way to the what we call the Silubi instrumenti, or the power instruments, and those were in the form of insurance uh, groups, uh, such as the one that uh, you, uh, you can see allegedly in, let's say, WikiLeaks and some of the documents which link directly uh, the current prime minister to really dark practices of the 90s where where the initial capital was distributed, state assets were stripped, and it gave sort of uh, an opening just like in Russia and the other countries, you know, a marriage between organized crime and legitimate business. Now, ever since, what we're seeing is a absolute push towards what I call cleaning biographies. So people are trying to distance themselves from their rather dark past or allegedly dark past. And they're trying to portray themselves as people which are obeying the rules. Now, the rules are obeyed, but the big problem with Bulgaria is at which level, how deep? The real problem with the protesters, and I tend to agree with them, is that we're witnessing almost as if you're having a sad democracy. What Brussels, what uh, people that are monitoring Bulgarian elites, uh, and uh, this is something to be said, you know, if you're monitored, you know, what kind of type of trust you're having. Uh, if they're monitored, uh, they are showing everything that needs to be shown uh, on paper. And of course, uh, it, one has to be mad, you know, to deny that uh, what Bulgaria looked in 1991 compared to 2020, um, things haven't moved. Yes, of course, you have huge uh, development, not only uh, in terms of social changes, institutional changes, but purely even if you land on uh, Sofia Airport, you'll see uh, tremendous trust forward in, um, in developing infrastructure. However, what the hidden story is, is first of all, the rampant inequality and the corruption which literally kills. Um, this also means the state capture, which we're talking so much about, fully manifested. Uh, and what is really problematic is that this is this manifestation happens in a country which is not only EU but NATO member, and it is located uh, on a uh, one of the most important uh, flanks of NATO, which uh, in itself, if you look at what is going on in the Mediterranean between uh, Turkey and Greece, other NATO members, is very and of course bordering you know, Black Sea and facing the challenges coming out from Russia, that makes it even more complicated, uh, let alone, you know, all the major, you know, sort of energy corridors, which are, which are, you know, are passing by Bulgaria. So one of the interesting facets of this protest to me is that there's a conflict between the president and the prime minister. The president, who's more, mostly ceremonial, has kind of tentatively supported the protesters, but he doesn't really have any actual power. And of course, the prime minister has not. And so do you believe that Bulgaria does need some constitutional changes? And then the second one is, how are the obvious external actors viewing this? Who does the EU really support? Do they support the government or the protesters? And Russia, is Russia playing any role in this at all? Catherine, do you you have anything to add or? You stole one of my questions. (laughs) 
Thank you very much. Well, yes, there is a there is a conflict between the president and the prime minister, and it started actually with a sharp action in um, what was it a couple of weeks ago? Actually, you know, it's it's right on the start of the protest. Actually, there were some searches made in the presidency and so on, and um, the president is standing behind the protesters, which is quite obvious, but he does not have uh, neither its own political project nor uh, the powers which are vested within the, the with, with the prime minister uh, of the country. Now, short answer to your question, uh, certain changes, but depending what, you know, and concerning uh, sort of the judiciary in Bulgaria might be needed. However, I'm not quite sure whether uh, someone who has exhausted there, uh, and this I believe is visible by the poll, polls of what, what the Bulgarian public wants, such as Prime Minister Borisov. Uh, so someone who has exhausted sort of the confidence in him is able to propose changes in the Constitution. I would rather think that this is not a good idea. It is a political tactic. Not uh, Changes should be proposed by representatives which have much wider political credit. And uh, Borisov's political credit is gone. Sooner or later, he has to step and give way to his successors. And of course, he, uh, which is tied to the second question, he is labeling himself and he is trying to portray himself as the absolute pro-Western power in uh, Bulgaria. The problem is that what uh, EU and, and, and the West in general wants is to see rule of law. And he's been reminded multiple times about problems with rule of law, mainly corruption, which I don't think uh, they have been addressed. And the scandals, of course, the leaks, which are probably the spark that brought beyond with the action in the presidency. And those leaks were actually pretty spicy and scandalous, if you will, pictures from that leaked from the prime minister's own bedroom. Uh, but they're not connected to any intimate details. It was rather what was in and around his bedroom and namely it was cash and gold stashed in on the reading table uh, and you know a gun which was put there which scandalized Bulgarians uh, as to the unexplained sources of wealth and of course you know very much so and uh, the, the, the reason is that I don't support intrusion in private space and God forbid you know endangering people it just gave a vivid illustration to what the populace suspected they might be there. And of course, you know, we can talk about, you know, whether this was montage, whether this was uh, insinuation, but unfortunately there were a number of other leaks um, unexplainably how they came of uh, telephone conversations of the prime minister with his colleagues and so on into which absolutely unacceptable language I'll leave at that. In description of public figures, in description of colleagues from his own party, in descriptions of modes of how he would deal you would expect this type of language to come out in a probably in a bar after 12 o'clock among people that not necessarily would hold high public office. Now that came as a as a final drop into the patience of all these uh, people and became a spark. So it's a, more or less it was a precipitant to to things that were brewing for a very long time. Now interestingly enough is to see whether these protests will follow the fate of those in 2013-14 and whether they will lead to qualitative changes. Qualitative changes in my mind means reforms. Those reforms need to be initiated by people that are trusted, people that have uh, wide public support. And unfortunately, I don't think this prime minister is able to offer that. Bulgarians seem to be fed up with uh, with this situation, and rightfully so, are on the street. Now, whether I agree with all the tactics and how they're implemented all across the city, of course, each protest creates disruption, creates unpleasant situations. But there is a huge point, and there is an elephant in the room which needs to be talked about. Now, interestingly, I'll end up on this, that EU is in a very specific situation to come comment on, on the internal affairs because it will not interfere. But obviously, if uh, the country continues to be in the verification mechanism, that should tell you something about the political signaling. Dr. 
Bob, you mentioned earlier how crucial Bulgaria really is for the EU and NATO, like just its position geographically on the subcontinent. And I would love to hear your take as to why the EU hesitates so much whenever Bulgaria is really important for relations with Russia, Turkey, the Black Sea, security and migration. Why do they seem to hesitate on delivering a strong stance if this is supposed to be a member state? Shouldn't they enforce their own principles? Well, it, it really it has to do something with the architecture of the EU in itself. So when we talk about the president, the commission and so on. First of all, uh, you have to understand that uh, the situation is complicated. Of course, you know, EU stands by, by its principles and there are plenty of signals as to why I think sort of the demands of the, the especially concerning the rule of law and uh, cleaning up the act in terms of corruption. I think there's been multiple messaging by the EU. So I wouldn't blame necessarily the EU. Now, the expectations are that EU might issue, you know, in form of its leadership in different bodies, stronger reaction. One explanation, of course, which has been popular, I don't know whether this is necessarily always the point, is that GERP is part of a political family into which, of course, you have all the way to, to Chancellor Merkel. Now, this also could be aligned into a series of problems, if you will, which concern other countries. Think about the case of Poland, of Hungary, and think about the reaction of the EU. EU, after all, comes out uh, or it has to solve problems not only related to, to sort of global crises, but it, in itself, it just gotten into, uh, got, you know, and still deals with one of the most major, if not the most major sort of challenge that it had, and that is Brexit. So, if you want Bulgaria, you're absolutely correct. You know, it's not only because of uh, what we've talked about, the flanks and so on, but it also, it is the fact that it has to signal, you know, to countries inside the club of what we do with one of our own, but also, you know, the future applicants of, you know, how should we treat countries, you know, which are obviously having those deficiencies. So it's it's a very delicate spot. <laughs> you can't, you can't, you can't take away the right of, you know, things to to be solved internally, regardless of the fact that you're partially your you, you have your sovereignty partially shared, if you will. However, um, it, so some of the things need to be solved internally, and there are only so much mechanisms that you can that you can use, if you will, to show either your support or your displeasure with certain type of political action. So. Yeah, it could be expected possibly more, but I think plenty by now has been, plenty signaling has been done by now, uh, which not only the local elites, but non-elites are picking up as well. So the expectation is that reforms will come sooner or later because um, there is not a very bright future you know, if we if we continue to play this game. It's, it is definitely an unfinished business, and this unfinished business only could be solved by, by major reforms. And again, by reforms, however, by credible uh, sort of agents of change rather than people that have been you know around and been part of the problem, not uh, part of the solution. Yeah, I, I think that's a, a great question and a great answer. The, the only thing I would add is just that I think the EU doesn't want to take on, you know, all of the Balkans and Eastern oh. Europe at the same time, right. right? Because they're still dealing with really bad democratic uh, backsliding in Hungary and in Poland as well. And I don't, right, and there's not the stomach to take on, you know, entire regions of Europe. Absolutely. And too many, too many fires, you know, to be put down at the same time, you know, to deal with. I'd like to move on to your book. You had a book come out recently. The title is Russia's Hidden Armies. Did I, did I get that right? Yes. So it's a, the closest translation you know, to my co-authored book with an investigative journalist who's Bulgarian-Syrian. His name is Ruslan Trad. And this book is part of our almost three years journey into looking at a very interesting experiment in the post-Soviet practice of implementation of a model which is not usual for the way Russia and post-Soviet, post-Soviet Russia and Soviet Union would conduct covert action. And uh, the title uh, being sort of interesting, worldly, uh, Russia's Invisible Armies. Russia's army, you know, has always been very, very visible and credited for everything it has done. It's part of the mystique, it's part of the mythos. However, what we're, what the book deals with um, is the proliferation of private military and security companies, uh, which 
came into light and uh, been noticed recently because of the appearance in very unusual uh, places that you would not expect Russian uh, armed personnel to show, such as um, Syria, not outside of the regular forces, but also a number in scores of uh, African uh, countries. Notably, we're talking about the cases of Central African Republic and other places where they are part of an offensive of the Russian Federation in foreign policy and security offensive into areas which, according to their own doctrine from 2016, are ultimate and penultimate in interest, if you will. But due to a number of political developments, such as the sanctions, such as the inability to go beyond um, Europe, we see proliferation of a model which most likely has been copied from the West. Bear in mind that uh, the Russian constitution is pretty strict. It bans mercenary activities and it has pretty steep cost attached, attached to it. But we see an experimentation by Siloviki and uh, the respective services, uh, be it FSB, be most notably GRU. And we are seeing an instrument which allows for plausible deniability, lowering down the cost uh, back home and allowing for operating under the radar in what we deem, what we talk about in the book as ultimate uh, experimental playgrounds or in Russian polygon, in those uh, polygon where you can see interoperability of those forces. You can see aiding uh, not only public interest in the form of Russian armed forces helping Assad and uh, keeping his regime in place, but also of private businessmen, which are trying and very interestingly to participate in the vertical of power back home by switching and trading favors. So that would be precisely the case of Evgeny Prigozhin, Putin's chef, which also is kind of a central figure that we're looking at, but not only. So this is a model of private-public, you would call it quasi-public-private partnership, into which you see implementation of private force for very various reasons all across the globe. Uh, And this is a novelty, uh, which is rooted very well, actually, in Soviet and Russian traditions from previous eras. And just for clarification, what's new about it is that that they're private on 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 the one hand, but it's but they have these kind of very well not always clear, but these suspicious links to the ruling power and, and ruling party. I mean, how do those links get exposed? How public really are they? I, I I mean, I know that you know from things like the Mueller report and you know other great a lot of you know, obviously German journalism Bellingcat. You know, we see these people get exposed as you know very clearly working for. The Russian state, but I think what's really interesting is kind of you know the purpose for having them be private in the in the in the first place. What do you get from being private and and kind of having this acting like they're legitimate? Is that just copying kind of the West? Well, those are three questions into one, you know, and they're really, really important. Uh, well, first of all, is I'm going to go get back, you know, like on reverse. Those instruments are very useful. Now, let's let's just for a second remember that if you look at the history and formation of European states and the history of Europe, and if you look at Russian history, you know, Kazakhstan uh, and then the so-called volunteer movements, you will see that the mercenaries were a norm. Standing armies came later on. So you have a reversal switch. Why is it important, you know, to use uh, this type of instrument in, in modern era? Well, first of all, is because you can privatize and outsource certain functions that need to be done pretty risky one all kinds of uh, services that you can provide anywhere from passive security to active participation just as what happened under Palmyra aiding the regular forces so this is not necessarily only a Russian phenomenon what the phenomenon what is what is interesting is that having in mind the monopoly if you will which uh, Suloviki has established in the legal domain of uh, privatization of force in, in the Russian Federation all of a sudden under the chief of staff of uh, Gerasimov, Valery Gerasimov, there is a period of instrumentation or experimentation with models which I think what the Russians have been doing is they've been observing very carefully what the West has learned as lessons on uh, what the so-called war on terror and engagements in different theaters and try to implement it for their own for their own purposes. Now again, what are those own purposes? Obviously, um, if you look at what really Russia 
wants in this situation is a multipolar world, right? Uh, and regaining its power into former sphere of influences. Now, if you don't have the full-blown resources of the USSR or in general, you, you know, you have to be creative, if you will, with, uh, with forms that you can intervene. One of the forms which they're experimenting with is with those private military security companies. Now, interesting fact is that if you look at the so-called Wagner, because it's a, actually the name of the call sign of one Colonel Lutkin, and not necessarily a, a classical Blackwater type of company, which is registered and so on. Uh, I mean, these companies, part of them have, uh, because it's not only Wagner, but it's Chevy Kamar and a number of others that actually we heard again from them with the recent arrests made in, in Minsk of uh, people that were in transit to other countries, which are what we'll call mercenaries or contractors. Now, going back, these are companies which are registered outside of the Russian Federation. Everybody knows that they're Russian, which you know we're touching on on how do we know in the data collection. Well, first of all, is to give a huge kudos and due to our Russian colleagues, very brave investigative journalists, people that are working with with OSINT in order to expose how the internal workings of recruitment, of approach, of pay scales, of uh, places where where uh, these people have been operating, and of course, number of leaks uh, and other instruments that we, we would uh, we used uh, in terms of OSINT in order to try to create a picture and get a better understanding of how those instruments connected to plausible deniability, which allow Russian state when things go sour or when it does not want to be detected to step back and say, well, this is a private uh, initiative. Now, uh, just to illustrate the point, if you think, you know, the Wagner that we're talking about, uh, it is the very same Prigozhin, which appears and, you know, and it's under sanctions, obviously, uh, which is connected to 2016 interference and the troll farm. Isn't it interesting that, you know, you have kinetic and non-kinetic action connected to one and the same person? I'm pretty sure that he himself, if you look at his uh, public appearances and we analyze a number of his interviews, he of course denies and he probably himself does not have that big of an interest in all of those affairs. It is the people actually that allow him to win through the system of public procurements where huge corruption breeds, where, uh, you know, diversion of money could be spent for other purposes. This is where your oligarchs and minigars step in to give a lending hand on the vertical power, you know, in, in, in Putin's Russia. And this is when they're the instruments that are proposed to them, because uh, frankly, there are several versions, you know, that how exactly Mr. Prigozhin came about with his catering company initially, and this is what his business is, to cater to to the elite, but also delivering you know, food in Moskovsky Oblast to schools and, you know, win procurements for the army. How come he's the one that ends up, you know, with all of this information and also a kinetic operation, you know, of enforcers that are all across? Now, the simple answer is that there are cliques behind uh, the curtain, which use, you know, this type of, you know, private interest uh, to further foreign policy interest. Now, however, that points out something to, to something that we talk about in the book as well, which is very important, is a situation where we literally see gray zone diplomacy, if you will, into which you don't know where the private interest ends and where the public begins. So, in, in essence, what you can we can summarize is that in, uh, in this type of dynamic, dynamic, if you will, success can be privatized uh, when necessary and shown off to the world by the state. And failure, uh, if it happens just as under their resort, you know, can automatically lead to a situation where the state has, says, you know, we're nothing to do with these people. Those are private sort of adventurers, gray zone adventurers, which have done it on, on, on our own, does not implicate the, the Russian elite, the current Russian elite. You know, we, we have to be very, very specific. This is, you know, we're talking about a regime, not a country. What we are seeing here is that this instrumentation is used and it's experimented in different countries, Libya, Central African Republic, but also they're seeking into actually expanding, as Mr. Prigozhin's uh, experience shows, into multiple, not only, you know, probably the most kind of like the attractive part when people want to hear about the mercenaries, but actually what we call package of services in our book. So the package of services, uh, I think that the case of Madagascar would, would uh, be illustrative to that, where actually you're 
trying to send sociologists, political advisors, a number of other people associated with the same band. And, you know, the, the mercenaries are just the very end, you know, because sometimes they would provide security assistance and so on. And what is interesting in the case of Central African Republic is that you will see that a lot of these, as in Syria, a lot of these oligarchs are having interest in resource-rich areas. So mercenaries usually would come to enforce partially the private interest. You know, it's usually mining and prospecting. And of course, their interest partially would be gold, diamonds, and so on. You can, in times of sanctions, you know, let me remind you that it's easy way to move money, you know, when you're on the monitor into rather obscure deals, you know, connected to those and partially it is greed making profit on a side and if we have to draw kind of like the overall perspective and say well is it successful is it how's it working in comparison with you know long established traditions you know of other countries to to have a private uh, military sector I would say it's a mixed success uh, sometimes you have spectacular successes just as I mentioned under Palmyra or possibly a lot of people might say you know look at uh, you know what goes on with Haftar's forces in Libya and sometimes it is spectacular failure when we look at the direct clash between U.S. forces and uh, probably which is the most dangerous thing we've seen in the past several years and people probably didn't pay enough attention to it because it has a huge potential on, on the ladder of escalation to quickly get out of the control. Uh, so this is why we think it's very significant because uh, this experiment is not about to stop. This is very convenient for a lot of uh, political, what I would call them, political, political entrepreneurs, because that's what they are. They try to curry favors. They, just as Galeotti would suggest, they operate in a system of adhocracy. Uh, so there is a lot of latitude to implement different type of solutions. We see that uh, they're very dynamic. They quickly learn. And they are trying to implement what they see on the outside into their modus operandi. Now, what is more interesting, uh, you know, from possibly from civic perspective is how those things are regulated, because I believe that everybody would be safer. And this is not only in terms of Russian mercenaries in general, but about this business, which has been a perennial question is how do you uh, regulate privatized forces, which are in a service, you know, in the nightmare scenario, you know, for people like Sean McFaid, for instance, uh, who wrote the new uh, rules of war and some excellent books that came out this year as well, is what if we're heading towards uh, a new medieval period into which, you know, a very wealthy prince slash entrepreneur, you know, is able to have his private army operating, you know, out of his understanding of how the world ought to be and uh, making, a, making a dollar on, on the side with very high risks uh, and costs attached. So our book is basically putting this in perspective from from kind of like from from the Russian standpoint of view, connects it uh, with the tradition, you know, Cossacks, volunteers in the frozen conflicts, many of them on the Balkans uh, in the ex-Yugo wars, where you have the first volunteers, volunteers, because part of them, of course, were symbolically paid, but paid, which puts them in a different category, Transnistria, and uh, of course, you know, later on Crimea and Ukraine. We didn't wanted to repeat that much about the things that were written about the little green man and the cooperation with local irregular forces and private companies. We were much more interested to understand how many functions they serve. And interestingly, a lot of these uh, companies, you know, beyond the ones that are probably the most talked about, such as Wagner, have something else on the other spectrum, such as patriotic running patriotic youth camps, uh, which we have written about as well, and patriotic education for very young children, which are part of this perpetual mobilization which we see periodically in the Putin's regime uh, to catch up, to resist, and so on. And these formations find kind of neatly their place up to a point where as one of the participants of those which uh, now defunct Cheveka, Chasnevena Campania, has said uh, very importantly, you operate very well until you have a good Krisha, which means roof. So you are allowed to operate as long as the political elite deems you useful. And I will end up here because that means that, of course, once you outlive your usefulness to a specific agenda, you could be easily disposed of, which is not the case with regular forces. This is 
very enlightening. And when did you decide to take an academic approach to these this very niche and upcoming type of warfare, pretty much? Do you see this pattern being expanded on or maybe even copied by other countries as generations go on? Maybe China, perhaps? Oh, very good question. Um, actually, the interest is slightly connected to my initial uh, sort of coming to uh, UT with the Intelligence Studies Project. As you know, I'm interested in non-Western political warfare and uh, covert action in its kinetic and non-kinetic component. The, the reason why we were interested not only in, in weaponization of information and propaganda is because the Soviet tradition of active measures uh, has demonstrated that actually you have a pretty big toolbox, you know, which starts with, you know, propaganda and forgeries and ends up uh, on kinetic action and removing opponents. But, uh, you know, going back to my interest, uh, my interest in privatization of forces, because from standpoint of conventional political science theory, uh, it's interesting to see how the principal and agent are working in tandem, you know, whether they have conflicts or not, and uh, how this type of instrumentation actually is implemented by regimes which do, which fear actually parting away, you know, <laughs> with control over this type of hard force on one side, and on the other side, trying to use the lessons learned from other countries' experience and get the best out of their tradition. But what I'm saying is think about the partisans, think about uh, the regular warfare, you know, connected to the white emigre taught. So there's a lot of original input, theoretical, uh, which is purely Russian and Eastern European. And this is playing out. Now, whether you're asking me whether this will be a playbook for other countries, quite possibly. We see that other countries also experiment, albeit in in very different way, you know, specifically when we talk about China. But uh, this is another way of Russia to say, look, you know, we're here, you know, we're in Africa. We're competing not only with the West, but with China as well. Don't forget that we were present in former uh, spheres of influence in, in Africa. We were uh, educating the elite, the anti-colonial elite. We were supporting anti-colonial movements. Now, you know, we're appearing in a different form. And it it is, you know, an iteration, if you will, of uh, what what could be done in the future. Um, it's very interesting to see the trajectory of, of this phenomenon several years down the road to see whether it has undergone an evolution and this evolution where it takes the projection of Russian power because this is what it is. As, as private as it is, we understand actually perfectly well that behind it, those entrepreneurs are not independent from the regime. Well, I think this is a good place to kind of transition from all this insight you've given us about kind of how these private military companies, we translate into English, how they, how they work. And so I'd kind of like to look at this very recent practical case of the use of one of these private companies in Belarus. And the backstory is a little bit complicated and convoluted. The just kind of a brief summary, we've actually talked about it before on the podcast. These mercenaries showed up in Belarus, supposedly in transit. Some said they were going to Venezuela. Others said uh, Africa. Others said Syria. Lukashenko claimed that they were sent by Russia to destabilize Belarus or to secure Russian interest in case things became destabilized in Belarus. But on the other hand, people said, oh no, Lukashenko has a history of doing these kind of self self-inciting instability uh, before elections to kind of, he, ha he's, he has a history of doing this. Then a few days later, these reports started coming out that, oh no, the whole thing was a Ukrainian covert action. And they had fabricated this communication with Rosneft to get them to send them there so that they could apprehend mercenaries who had actually been fighting Ukraine in, in the occupied Donbass territories. And, and so there's a, lot of, there's a lot of hot air in this story, uh, kind of a lot of you know, unimportant things. And it, I, I think the story actually paradoxically has become less uh, interesting with time. But what interests you about this story and what are kind of the main takeaways that you think are interesting here? Yes. Well, thank you very much for pointing out first that is, you know, sensationalist, but not for the Slavic connection uh, or for some other serious outlets. 
What I believe is interesting is exactly the illustration that uh, there is an ongoing dynamic. And most likely countries like Belarus might have been used as a transit point with a quiet approval of people like Lukashenko for people to be shipped in different destinations without too much noise clandestinely. We know that the functions, as I have been talking previously, that uh, the private military and security companies that they execute is very wide. And we talk about in the book as well, you know, anywhere from, you know, passive guarding and, you know, logistical functions, all the way to tip of the spear operations. And we see that in each iteration, there is a specialization of the company according to which security service they're connected to and specific way of operating. What is more interesting to me is actually that we do see um, a vivid illustration that when there is a political quarrel, private military security companies can become partially a political currency. And this is a type of business where people are notoriously tight-lipped. There is not simply that you can walk in, interview some of these people, and they will willingly tell you about their assignments and so on. It's just the nature of the business of how they operate. Uh, that doesn't mean that they're super professional sometimes it just means that uh, they don't they shy away from publicity as much as possible uh, but it just illustrates the general trend and dynamic that we're talking about in the book that we will see more of these uh, private enterprisers trying to get into into the into the market which is has been traditionally dominated by other forces uh, in other countries or in companies uh, and uh, they will try to implement their specific way of operating to cater most likely to the expansion of their own uh, most likely state-backed businesses, whether it's going to be uh, oil, whether it's going to be gas and so on. So they will act in concert and not against uh, the, the interests of the Russian Federation, you'll see that there is a gradual reorientation for them instead of looking on the open market uh, to get jobs, you know, from multinational corporations or, or political elites or so on, towards looking for specific assignments which are with the national champions of Russia or specific uh, private interests which are compatible with. So they will be acting in a, in, in a concert. My prediction is that this scandal will, will go away and people will start forgetting about it as much as as sensationalist it was but uh, in the future we'll see much more attention paid to this form of influence if you will of warfare of conducting and enforcing foreign policy objectives and projecting power outside of the immediate uh, borders of the Russian Federation Uh, so uh, expect more of this expect that it will become probably more refined and uh, I believe that it is worth understanding it, studying in it, and taking into account when we're talking about the general security and foreign policy posture of the, of the Russian Federation in the 21st century. Quick question about that last point. Do you, could you see a scenario where the Russians eventually kind of make this legal and kind of throw off the mask of distancing and just kind of you know op- openly embrace it? There is, uh, thank you for pointing out, because this is actually uh, something which has been in the public sphere and in the legislative chambers uh, in, 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 uh, in the Duma for, for quite a while. And uh, yes, down the road, quite possibly, parts of, of this type of operations might become, might as well, legal. We, even now, we see modification and provisions in the legislature, which means, you know, that's a, that's a nodding from, from all the way on the top with, with uh, the backing of Mr. Putin that can operate in certain zones when you're related, you know, on, uh, in what, you know, they call their war and terror, and uh, you will not be penalized. Uh, so uh, in order to have this unequal treatment, if you will, of different private military companies because it's exemplified actually in the two cases. You know, the prototype of Wagner Slavonic Corps had a huge fiasco in, in Syria. Upon return, you know, people were arrested. Now, whether they have, you know, been tried and so on all the way down, that's questionable, but were made an example of and they were associated with FSB versus, you know, their 
sort of successor in Wagner, into which you have Colonel Lutkin uh, being officially taken photo of in Kremlin meeting with Putin. So I think that there are uh, a plenty of talk. And uh, for right now, not immediately, but down the road, I think a certain degree of, um, I'm going to use the word probably normalization in treatment of, of something that already exists. Uh, to be recognized and to be made suitable for the Russian reality. Again, Siloviki are not very happy, or at least big portion portion of them and part of you know the, the elite of the the armed forces of to legalizing those uh, those companies. But it might become reality at a certain point down the road. Yeah, I was going to say we're just on the edge of our time. Uh, Catherine, do you have a, a last question or thought you want to throw in here? Yeah, I did. I was um, on this, you know, these privatization of these armies. Is there any opposition at a grassroots level within, you know, the Russian population in itself saying, hey, these companies are making our country go into really murky water where we are or what we're doing? Is there any opposition in the Duma or at a political level within Russia for these types of operations? Yeah, well, obviously, uh, there are segments of the Russian population, elite and non-elite alike, which are concerned. This is not only that this is risky, but again, going back to accountability and predictability, it can land you very quickly into hot water and uh, no one can really be sure, you know, how you've gotten there with, without oversight, uh, without control. You have to understand that, you know, the people that are drawn to, to these outfits are a mixture. You know, a lot of people were doing it for you know, for living, you know, doing it for the money. Others would might, you know, do it for other motifs. Unfortunately, we do have some of those, a small section of those we've seen in Ukraine, which are ideologically motivated, very interestingly connected, you know, to like the infamous Melchikov case, you know, which was in Ukraine and then in Syria, connected to St. Petersburg neo-Nazi scene. Uh, and so on. So, I mean, these some of these characters are pretty unsavory that, uh, individually if we're looking at them. But we haven't seen, you know, uh, there, there is a concern definitely in the civic society. There is a concern at legislative level about the control and oversight, and this explains partially why they haven't been legalized. But also, we haven't seen a drastic action of, you know, rooting them out or, or, or taking them out of existence. So that should tell you something about probably the mixed reactions of uh, which we're having. But you have to understand also that the families of some of these people, especially uh, the ones that lost their lives and haven't been recognized by the state, are pretty vocal uh, about about this situation. Unfortunately, it's very with heavy heart when you speak to widows, uh, which which are demanding more information, which are demanding more clarity, and that's where they hit a wall of secrecy, uh, to, you know, coming from the from the authorities and, and the armed forces, claiming you know classified data as to what the missions were and uh, what were the precise uh, circumstances. But at the very minimum, they want recognition that uh, this is not the situation as what has been done in Ukraine, ichtam yet, which literally means they were they are not there. They are there. Uh, the question is how and uh, how their presence is explained and um, uh, how adequate that explanation is made to and available to, to the Russian public, which I think is the minimum. Wow. So it seems like at least one of the real losers of this you know, type of operation are the family members of these Absolutely, mercenaries. Absolutely, because, I mean, in case of the worst, you know, there is we've seen documents where there is an outline what they will get in case of death, in case of injuries and so on. But a lot of those families want just simple recognition. Those burials are conducted in secrecy. Um, there is uh, very much fog of secrecy which has been thrown over the over the whole issue in order not to divulge any secrets. But uh, these family members are talking to journalists and talking to, to scholars. Dr. Abramov, thank you so much for coming on today. You've given us incredible insight into these very secretive and also, quite frankly, intimidating organizations. Uh, I, you know, the scholarship that you are doing really kind of is at the cutting edge, both in terms of importance, but also digging up these really important facts. So thank you again for coming on, and we can't wait to have you back. Thank you very much for having me. It's always a pleasure. And um, yes, I'm looking forward to, to talk to you again. There will be plenty to talk about on those topics, unfortunately. The views expressed on this episode do not necessarily reflect those of the show or the University of Texas. Please visit slavxradio.com for more information. Thank you for listening. The 
Slavic Connection is produced by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Texas.